Hi, I'm Graham. And I'm Chris. And this is episode 9 of the Pet Shop Boys In-Depth Podcast, an unofficial fan podcast made with love, etc. for Pet Shop Boys fans all over the world. We're really interested in your feedback, so do please get in touch and let us know which your favourite episodes are and what you'd like to see us cover in the future. You can follow us on Twitter at Pod or via our new Facebook page. These podcasts start at pretty much as a word of mouth thing. We found all the biggest Pet Shop Boys communities and tentatively began to promote. And then Pet Shop Boys' own social channels shared our links, catapulting us to number one in the Apple Podcast Music Charts. So our first number one, kind of like West End Girls. But whereas Neil and Chris didn't want to look triumphant on top of the pops, we're not quite that cool (laughs) and can't stop shouting about it. United by a shared love of one band, can two amateurs like us produce a podcast befitting the world's greatest synth-pop duo? There's only one way to find out. So, Graham, why on earth are we sitting here with a big plate of oysters and seaweed trimmings, sipping on a 1942 Chateau Latour? Well, today we're going to chat about the influence that films and cinema in general has had on Pet Shop Boys over the years. And of course, you can't talk movies without discussing the seminal, infamous, surreal, bizarre 1988 feature film, It Couldn't Happen Here, which is why you're in full tuxedo and I'm wearing a leather jacket and a black beanie hat and I've just ordered a filet of sole Belgique. So I guess that makes me podcast Neil to your Chris for for today at least. Oh, definitely, yeah. Well, you're going to do all the talking and I'm just going to look moody in the corner. So why are we going to talk about film? We all know that Neil's a big reader and that books have been a big influence on his lyric writing. But I think films have been an even bigger and less celebrated Pet Shop Boys influence. When Neil appeared on Desert Island Discs back in 2007, the luxury item he chose was a DVD projector and a big box of films to watch, presumably on a big sheet tied between two palm trees. Do you think he would have taken it? Couldn't happen here. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, before we disappear down that particular rabbit hole, let's start with some facts. 1987, Pet Shop Boys were originally due to tour, but they decided against it due to the cost of putting on the kind of show that they wanted to. Unfortunately, they'd already committed to a video company that they were planning on filming it. So instead of doing that, Oh, what can we do? Right, let's put out a simultaneous video release. They're very, uh, very common at the moment. The The had done that with Infected. So they were working with the director, and I'll take a deep breath with this, uh, Zbigniew Rabchensky. He's the guy that directed the second Opportunities video. So they got as far as having scripts worked out for each song, but they couldn't get the filming equipment because they needed to get it back off an Italian TV channel. And the whole thing just ground to a halt. I always remember, and again, I, this is probably just lost in the midst of time. I always remember the story that it couldn't have any, it was going to be one of Melvin Bragg's South Bank show episodes, which for those under the age of 30, or outside of the UK, it was a 1980s hour-long arts and culture programme that went out on a Sunday night. It usually involved having a creative, arty subject filmed in an interesting way. So I think Jack Bond had done one for Roald Dahl, and Neil liked that, so they met for dinner. I think there were probably quite a few dinners. <laughs> This is where Bond quizzed Neil and Chris about the backgrounds, their views on the world, etc. And from this, from all of his notes, he built a rough narrative. And eventually, this was built out into a full 90-minute film, so not quite the 60-minute no. programme that they'd started off with. Neil and Chris told him to put them in the film in their own songs, or his idea of what the songs meant. What they didn't want to do was something really literal and cheesy, and that's why it ended up being quite a surreal affair. Maybe more magical mystery tour than A Hard Day's Night, kind of impressionistic and non-linear. We should remember at this early stage that Bond was a close friend of Salvador Dali's. 
we both watched this for the purposes of the podcast just to catch up on it in the last few weeks. I mean, it's bizarre, isn't it? Every time you watch it, you see something differing in it and you start a different theory with it. I think the last time that I watched it, I suddenly, for half of the film, I, I couldn't get David Fincher's Fight Club out of my head and this idea, and I thought, I've cracked this film. I understand it finally. Chris is Neil's alter ego and, this, <laughs> and it kind of works for about three quarters of the film and then you just realise that, no, I don't think it does. I think I, I, I just don't, really don't understand any of it and I think that probably is the point of it really what a dream brief can you imagine just getting called up and saying you know we're one of the biggest pop art bands in the country we'd like you to just make some films about some of our songs it must be great they shot it in about 18 days which is very very quick in film terms and it's got a very impressive British cast yeah. Joss Ackland Neil Dickinson Gareth Hunt and of course Dame Barbara Windsor and they all play multiple bizarre surreal characters yeah that's right and apparently according to Jack Bond's commentary on the Blu-ray release. He found Joss Ackland quite difficult to work with. Two of them didn't get on very well, to the point where Jack Bond left him temporarily stuck at the top of the big wheel when they shot that particular scene. And they also had to contend with terrible weather. And in fact, you can see it on the seascapes. It's really choppy. These were the storms of 1987, which saw hurricane-force winds cause havoc, particularly in the southeast of England, where the film was being shot. I think those winds were everywhere. I can remember having my geography A-level fieldwork trip cancelled because of it. Probably not a four million budget. <laughs> Behind your room. <laughs> well, we did have expensive cagoules oh, back oh, then, absolutely. Go. So another fab fact right up from Graham. Brace yourself for yeah, this I'm one. Yeah, I'm braced, I'm braced. Uh, Neil wears a wig throughout the film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've, got, I've not really got anything to say that. I mean, probably not the worst thing in it. <laughs> in fact, I would say it's definitely the wig probably carries the film at some point. <laughs> <laughs> so why does he wear a wig? Well, the initial idea for the film, of course, was that it was going to be a partner to the Actually album. And that's why Neil's wearing the tuxedo throughout the film, as he does on the album sleeve. Yeah, yeah. But the time of filming he'd already snipped off those lovely curly locks <laughs> if you want to know what his real hair looked like at the time of filming you've only got to look at the youtube footage of them performing rent on live at the london palladium or on top of the pops because the rent single release happened at the same time that they were filming they recorded both of those performance during the weeks that they were filming it couldn't happen here and you'll see neil's hair is much shorter in real life it's a pretty good wig actually it had me fooled it's quite amazing really for you to reference a television show from what 30 35 years ago go and think can you remember what his hair looked like and it's like <laughs> well I can't remember what his hair like but I think we can probably all remember Chris's iconic Izimayaki inflatable jacket from that show <laughs> I don't think anybody was looking at Neil's hair on that performance <laughs> We should really try and get our heads around what the film's about, I guess. So it's it's a road movie, we know that. Mm-hmm. It's Neil and Chris travelling from the seaside of their childhoods to London. Yeah. If you look really closely, the big trunk that Chris is stuffing full oh, of yeah. the boarding house has That's got a, a great lab- scene. Has got it, yeah, absolutely. It's got a label on it that says King's Cross. Although <laughs> everybody else seems to be going to Scunthorpe for some reason. So the sign, the female hitchhikers, holds up, says Scunthorpe on there, and a ventriloquist and his dummy say that they're heading there. Although towards the end of the film, there's a station or a train announcement that says that the train's been derailed by the ventriloquist dummy I think so for whatever reason nobody goes to Scunthorpe <laughs> and at the risk of offending anybody that's listening from Scunthorpe <laughs> now, I'm not sure I've ever been to Scunthorpe so I don't know whether that's a good <laughs> or a bad thing in that respect clearly the film's obsessed with Scunthorpe but it's also a portrait of a wider England and this is a repressive 1980s England where the arts and creativity particularly are, are under attack and Neil and Chris I think are representing that creativity and they're trying to escape from figures of authority maybe even from aspects of their own childhoods. 
I think you can also speculate that there are links between the different characters played by the same actors. So we know that the blind priest at the beginning, played by Joss Ackland, he's also the psychotic hitchhiker that climbs into the back of the car. When Neil reads out the postcard he writes near the beginning of the film, he references Auntie V's boarding house and Uncle Dredge with his terrible jokes and his ventriloquist dummy, which insinuates that Dredge and the ventriloquist are the same person, both played by Gareth Hunt. Barbara Windsor obviously plays Neil's mother, duetting to What yeah. Have I Done to Deserve This, but she also plays his auntie V who owns the boarding house. And on Neil's mum's mantelpiece is a photograph of Neil Dickinson's Auntie Biggles character who's trying to gun down Neil and Chris. So surely if he's on the mantelpiece, he must be a close family member. So is he a brother or a cousin? Is Neil here actually under attack from someone <laughs> in his own family? Quite interestingly, Bond drove to see Dusty at her house in Henley to ask her personally if she'd be happy for Barbara to mime along to her part of the song. And apparently she told him that that would make her very proud. She was quite happy with that that idea. I'm not sure so far we're making it more understandable. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we didn't promise that. (laughs) As well as that boarding house postcard, which presumably is Neil referencing his childhood family holidays, he also makes a comment later in the film about Dad hating his job and how he used to leave in a flaming temper each morning. And you feel that that somehow is a reference to the Burning Man who features in that King's Cross section at the end. Yeah, I think that Casey Avenue section might be my favourite part of the whole film. It's full of references to the art of surrealist painter Magritte, who was himself a contemporary of Jack Bond's friend Dali. So the man on fire picking a burning rose from his garden, so that's a direct reference to Magritte's painting The Return of the Flame, where a masked man fleeing a raging inferno clutches a burning rose. And then we pass a billboard poster featuring a second Magritte painting called Personal Values. And in that painting, it's an everyday bedroom scene containing familiar objects, so bed, wardrobe, comb, match and glass, but all of them are completely different proportions than you would expect. But then we've got a man papering over that artwork with a second poster which shows the same bricks in the wall behind and that's another reference to a third Magritte painting called The Empty Picture Frame which is a painting within a painting of a framed brick wall. Interestingly, just one month after filming finished, there was, of course, a terrible fire at King's Cross Station in which 31 people died. And given this specific sequence showing the burning man, shortly followed by a burning cow, it was going to be soundtracked by Pet Shop Boy's song, King's Cross, which itself features the line dead and wounded on either side. Jack Bond put himself in front of the committee founded to represent the victims of the tragedy to ask their permission for the scene to be included in his finished film. And according to Bond, they were emphatic that it stay in. Sounds like he did quite a lot of driving around asking for permission for things. <laughs> oh, I wasn't quite sure that's what you did as a director, but I, there you go. I, I suspect on those type of budgets, you do everything. The, the fact that they've got multiple characters played by the same actors probably shows that budget's relatively that's tight. That's got to be a budget decision, hasn't <laughs> it? I think so. I think, ironically, that whole Magritte section is the least surreal bit of the entire <laughs> film. I think that's really interesting. There are another couple of reoccurring things in the film. The blonde female hitchhiker that is seemingly killed by Ackland's character before he climbs into mm. the car. She reappears later on in the film. She's on a bike, at a window, at a level crossing. And finally, she's on the train with a python for no reason. She's like a recurring muse type figure, yeah, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. Yeah, and the, the bright red post box, which yes. Neil posts his postcard home in at the beginning of the film well that reappears again at the end there's nobody there emptying it but it's outside the club where they perform one more chance that's the same red post box now neil said that he doesn't agree with all of jack's visions but he's completely comfortable with that i guess that's the nature of this type of collaboration in for a penny in for a pound you give yourself over to someone else's worldview 
So the finished film was released July 1988. I think it missed a couple of slots prior to this. They probably got this strategy for actually and so on. And by the time they'd started filming it, they're number one at Christmas, they're number one with Heart. They're starting to enter this imperial phase, really, aren't they? And sure. that probably had a few cinema owners thinking, oh, there's a there's a big film coming out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, you can have all our screens. <laughs> uh, so it probably ended up being opened to a wider audience really than it perhaps might have got when, when they initially started. And, and it's not really that type of film is it? Not really no. I'm, so I remember it being on at the Odeon in Leeds which is at the top of Brigger on the Hedro mm. and I saw it. Just assumed that it would be on for weeks you know, as sure. films were then. <laughs> if you didn't get round to it for the first couple of weeks you could then go and see it. The next time I looked it had gone and it just disappeared <laughs> and I never saw it again. I never uh, seen it at the cinema again. I didn't see it at the cinema either. I was only 12 at the time it came out given I'm of course like younger than you Graham probably considered the 15 certificate a bit of an issue I've never seen it on the big screen I would love to in fact I have approached a couple of film music festivals in recent years with the idea of screening it but no one's taken me up yet on that idea there's so much detail in the film isn't there that I think it really stands up to repeat viewings because of that I love trying to decode hidden meanings and trying to make sense of it all yeah I'm, I'm still just shocked that you're only 12 when this film came out <laughs> <laughs> with a 15 certificate it's quite racy as well I'm not surprised that your mum didn't take you <laughs> I don't think it was even an option I just probably dismissed it out of hand yeah, well I, there's a little bit of nudity in there isn't there yeah. I couldn't be having you an impressionable 12 year old seeing that it's very true <laughs> I mean, I, I agree, you know, there's so many elements of it that I love. I love its portrayal of late summer, autumnal England. I love English seaside towns at that time of year when things have shut up and, mm. you know, are almost hibernating for the winter. It's like that Morrissey line, isn't it? The the seaside town that they forgot to shut down. I just love that emotion of that time. The cinematography is fantastic throughout. Some of the shots, even though it's film, some of those are almost quintessential PSB shots, really, and how they've created stills out of moving images. And the stills from it look great as well. Yeah. The film poster looks brilliant, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. No, I love it. And the dialogue really whips smart. That scene where they're buying the car, Neil Dickinson is just reeling off reasons why you should buy a car, <laughs> yeah. and, and Neil's just stood there going, how much? <laughs> how much? And, and Chris jumps on the car and starts stealing the bride out of the back of it and things. There's so much about it. I know it gets dismissed, but there is so much good about it as well that, that's enjoyable. Have you ever tried watching it with a friend, though? Have you ever tried making <laughs> someone else watch it? It's impossible, isn't it? <laughs> I was toying with watching it with my wife again, and I just thought, it's just not worth it. I think it's been on Sky, hasn't it, recently? And a friend of mine sent me a text that was just saying, trying to watch this, but my, my <laughs> wife's just hurling abuse at it left, right and centre. You got to want to watch it and got to take it for what it is because you watch it with friends and it is just too easy to rip apart <laughs> and to have a go at and it's like yeah but that's really easy you've got to find the beauty in it and the fun in it it's just the very definition of imperial fears isn't it when you watch it it's just yeah we can make this film and and we have made this film there's the music though to fall back on isn't there yes i mean it is a great song. have you got the cassette i mean you I have everything have, i don't have the cassette no. oh, I, I always wanted keep that it, keep an eye out for the cassette. yeah please. well i'll no, keep an eye out for two copies of it presumably. <laughs> i have to say it's always something that i have wanted and i know that when this goes out people will start posting pictures on our Twitter account and make us even more jealous. I remember it being given away on Saturday morning TV yeah, and I thinking, think I remember oh, that as well. I want that, I want that, I want that. 
when the film came out, it was obviously a commercial failure, wasn't it? It was slated, yes. <laughs> slated by critics too. And it was considered the first time that Pet Shop Boys had put a foot wrong in their glittering career to date. I thought it was odd. They're not even on that, as brilliant as the design is. They're not even on the poster, are they? And I think since then, Neil and Chris have kind of adopted quite an amusing relationship with the film, haven't they? They're, obviously, they're rightly proud of it, but they're happy to slightly mock it at the same time. I think they're proud of, of the fact that they've got their own film out there, still yeah. being reissued yeah. and watched to the day. When they first performed the song It Couldn't Happen Here with an orchestra, which was back in 2012, Neil introduced it, remembering the headline that was in the American trade paper Variety at the time, which was, it shouldn't happen anywhere, <laughs> which is slightly cruel, isn't it? <laughs> And on the recent 4K reissue, if you listen to the director commentary on that, Jack Bond is just so enthusiastic about the film, isn't he? Loves sure. everything about it. Yeah. So proud of it. Still speaks so fondly of Neil and Chris, and they were totally uncomplaining and superb to work with. He's clearly really proud of it, and you know, rightly so. Personally, Graham, I'm still waiting for the sequel. <laughs> Well, we're going to have to come up with some titles then, aren't we? So, I mean, what would that be? It, it still couldn't happen here. It, it, it couldn't happen here too. Or that would be, that probably, it couldn't happen here either. Or probably something like, uh, it couldn't happen here, Tokyo Drift. <laughs> so we could just do the same journey, but much quicker. Or what if they went for something totally different? What about Wedding in Berlin, the rom-com? <laughs> You're listening to Okay, Graham, so sticking with films, but let's look now at Neil's lyrics. Many of the songs he's written over the years have drawn from films for their inspiration. You remember right from the start, the first, maybe the most iconic hit, Western Girls. Well, that was written after Neil spent the evening watching a James Cagney gangster film on television at his cousin's house one night in the early 80s. Isn't that night in bed, inspiration struck, <laughs> turned on the light, sat bolt upright in bed and he scribbled down, sometimes you're better off dead, there's a gun in your hand and it's pointing at your head. You know, I've often wondered exactly which James Cagney gangster film was Neil watching that night. Cagney was an American song and dance stage star who became known for playing on-screen tough guys in the 1930s in gangster films like The Public Enemy, Angels with Dirty Faces and The Roaring Twenties. So, just for you, I've been busy picking the brains of some of the internet's leading James Cagney experts. <laughs> oh, fantastic! <laughs> uh, I'm not sure, unfortunately, any of his films feature a scene in which someone puts a gun to their own head. I think I've only seen one James Cagney movie, which is White Heat. I think I only watched that because of the Madonna samples on the True Blue oh, album. okay. I wasn't aware uh, of that. All I remember about that is that Cagney is some form of gang leader and he mm. escapes police, climbs up this big, huge gas storage tank and stands at the top of that. It's the line where he goes, Look, Ma, I'm on top of the world. That's and right. Then I think he either shoots himself or he shoots he the shoots tower. shoots the tank. Yes. Maybe it could be that, perhaps. <laughs> I think that might, I think that might be the best we've got <laughs> but maybe it's more likely that the lines were basically just Neil riffing on, on the concept of gangster films rather than directly talking about any specific one however the following lines so you think you're mad too unstable kicking in chairs and knocking down tables well those definitely rung true when I played them Cagney fans on the internet that's the kind of bar brawl which I mean obviously it's a gangster film trope isn't it it takes place in any number of films definitely in James Cagney's films including the Roaring Twenties and, and Blonde Crazy so 
So maybe it was one of those two or three that Neil watched on that night. Or maybe he was just hanging out with Madonna in the mid-80s in New York and they were just going to the cinema together. A sort of a, a gangster scene where all these cool pop stars were all just going to all these cool clubs and maybe there's a back room where there's like secret cinemas going on, something like that. It must have been in his journalist days at that point. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe he was just kind of just hanging out and things like that. <laughs> And from Western Girls, you don't have to travel too far to find the next solid example of a cinematic influence on Neil's lyrics. And they even went as far as naming Suburbia after Penelope Spheris' 1984 punk film Suburbia, which they saw together, Neil and Chris, not Neil and Penelope, (laughs) at the cinema. I think this is the only example in the whole PSB canon of them naming a song directly after a film. And I mean, it's a punk film, but I've always thought that Neil and Chris have got a pretty punk attitude as well. I mean, ever since I bought that Suburbia cassette single and it said at the bottom of it, inspired by the film, it was like, ooh, I've become kind of slightly fascinated by that. Though obviously in 1986, you couldn't really do anything about it. It was not a film that was at the local blockbuster that you could take (laughs) out on video. But of course, YouTube is now our friend and the whole film is available on there to watch. So if anybody did want to go and watch it, they can. But I have to say, if people think that it couldn't happen here is a challenging watch, then (laughs) strap yourself in for suburbia. (laughs) It's a bit grim, isn't it? It is a bit grim. (laughs) It's indie, American, lo-fi, packed full of punks and musicians, really. And And one one of those is amazingly Red Hot Chili Pepper bassist Flea. Yeah. I couldn't recognise him, though. And also amazingly is, despite its bleak, you suddenly realise then that a few years later, the director, she's making Wayne's World, and it's quite a big leap is from, <laughs> from suburbia to Wayne's World. <laughs> when you watch suburbia through the eyes of a Pet Shop Boys fan, there's quite a few things that stand out as having influenced the song. You know, you're only three minutes in, you've met the first of many marauding dogs who roam the film's suburban streets in packs. In fact, right up front, I don't think you're more than a minute in and it's killed a toddler. Mm. Of course, backing dogs are a key part of the Suburbia song soundscape, representing that threat of violence that pervades the track. It's got that violent feel and the dog's barking, but then that jaunty sing-song piano chorus, and dogs are a recurring motif throughout the film as well. There's a scene quite early on in the film where Evan, who's a teenage runaway, he's decided to go with Jack, who's one of the punks, to one of these punk houses in the suburbs. And in the car, he reads out pages from his alcoholic mother's diary, which is stolen. And it says, Dear Diary, Mark and I are going to be very happy here. The air is clean, the sky is blue, and all of the houses are brand new. They call it suburbia, and that word's perfect because it's a combination of the words suburbs and utopia. And then Jack replies, they didn't realise it to be a slum to the future. Which, of course, directly inspired the talking bit from the full horror version of Suburbia and also the intro of the video version. And also my favourite bit of the whole Dreamworld show as well, I think. But beyond the lyrical influence, it's very clear that the film has also had a big influence on the Suburbia video, which was directed by Eric Watson, who I think was also a big fan of the film. Yeah. Those shots of... LA suburbs look just the same in the video as they do in the film. You know, they're shot the same. They're that same slow, menacing drive-by crawl. Yeah, it looks just the same. And there's the shots of the little kid on the track yes, as well. Yes, Which also uh, appears at the film's climax too. 
there's a part in the video where Neil and Chris are repeatedly walking towards the camera and that's really reminiscent of a famous shot in the film where the pack of punks are, are walking in exactly the same way. I guess that's been done in numerous films before. It's a visual quote from A Clockwork Orange. It's also referenced in, in Reservoir Dogs as well. Yeah, and I just love how they juxtapose this LA and UK suburb. One of them's in colour, one of them's in black and white. In LA, Chris is tussling and fighting with dogs, and whereas Neil is in the UK and he's spraying flies. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's basically the premise of the song as well, this LA-UK split. Neil's taken the film with its menace and threat of violence. He's transplanted it to the UK, where Mulder's got a hairdo to be done, (laughs) talking of bus stops and town halls. That's exciting as, as things get. There's never a policeman when you need one. He's taken the drama of the film and applied it to an even more mundane setting the English suburbs and he's done that in exactly the same way as their music is basically New York Electro reappropriated through an English lens sung in Neil's uniquely English voice. Tell you what another thing that I love I love the beginning of the video when you enter this UK suburban home for the first time and you you get to see a copy of West End Girls and Love Comes Quickly seven inches on the shelf and then they sit down which again mirrors scenes within the film big leather sofa and they're watching the opportunities video on TV it's so self-reverential and that we're only four singles in at this point and the first three are referenced in the video as well is great. So Cagney's Gangster Films and Suburbia's Portrait of Teenage Gangs, they're both studies of lawbreakers of different ages. I was thinking the Please Track Violence also kind of covers similar territory, the dark underbelly of society. And apparently violence was also inspired by another Penelope Spheris film, The Boys Next Door, which was from 1985. That's about two teenage boys who leave their hometown on their high school graduation day and embark on a crime and murder spree, so another barrel of laughs, Graham. (laughs) So as we've explored before... Crime and criminals were an early preoccupation of Neil's, and you can see it in those three songs particularly. In fact, there's loads of Neil's lyrics which take their inspiration from films, particularly uh, B-sides. So you've got Derek Jarman's The Last of England. Well, that inspired the sound of the atom splitting, which is on the flip of Left to Mind Devices. The Coal Miner's Daughter inspired Betrayed, which is the B-side of Save Either A. Boys Don't Cry inspired Girls Don't Cry, which is on the back of I'm With Stupid. Oh, well, and if I remember correctly, isn't the B-side of Suburbia Jack the Lad inspired by performance, the Edward Fox and yeah. Mick Jagger film where London gangster goes into hiding. We're talking gangsters again, aren't we? It's, right. it's crime, it's, but you know... I mean, there's just so many film and musical connections, aren't there? And to complete this little mini circle, I was reading in the original first edition of Annula, Neil actually suggested that It Couldn't Happen Here should have been titled Escape from Suburbia. I like that. Because it's dealing with and an escaping from these figures of authority, a priest, a mother figure, command, which are those themes of the film that we've talked about. <laughs> Okay, well, I think it's worth spending a moment paying homage to one movie that's the inspiration behind the lyrics of not one, not two, but three different Pet Shop Boys songs. And that film is, drumroll, thank you, (laughs) Midnight Cowboy. So, uh, from 1969, starring Dustin Hoffman and John Voight as two hustlers that strike up an unlikely friendship. Voight's a sex worker, Joe Buck, and Hoffman is Ratso, a con man. I mean, it's a stone-cold classic, isn't it? Winner of three Oscars, 1970, Uh including Best Picture, Best Director, and actually the only X-rated film to ever win Best Picture due to its overt sexual imagery and nudity. So, you're definitely not getting in that one. (laughs) (laughs) With your mum's taking you on. 
on. I'm, I'm definitely I, not taking you I'm to that. I'm not sure I get in now. <laughs> <laughs> so, the three songs. Yes, three songs. Uh, firstly, Opportunities. The relationship between the two characters in Midnight Cowboy was Neil's inspiration for the setup between the two characters in Opportunities. Presumably, Ratso had the brains, while Joe had the looks. And then Neil has also credited the same film for, in part at least, influencing both To Face the Truth from Behaviour and The Only One from Nightlife. In fact, it's the same single line in the film. The character of Crazy Annie, she's a promiscuous girl in high school who dates numerous boys until she begins going steady with Joe. And in one flashback scene, she whispers to Joe, You're the only one, Joe. You're the only one. And Neil said that for some reason this line really stuck with him and he used it in the bridge for To Face the Truth. He reprised the same idea again for The Only One. That's quite a lot of PSB mileage from just two sentences, particularly if you then factor in that you are the one from Hotspot. Now, that's not a million miles away either, is no, it? No, not at all. Well, he's certainly been prudent and we appreciate value for money. <laughs> I guess we should be particularly grateful for Midnight Cab as well in that I feel that that film almost defined the brand. It's two blokes walking around, <laughs> interacting with their surroundings. Ratso, the brain, confident front man. Joe, the looks sort of slightly skulking in the background. There's something familiar about that, I think. <laughs> You're listening to so, we've already discussed the Suburbia video, but there are quite a few other Pet Shop Boys videos that have also been influenced in some way by films. Would you say Heart is the most obvious? Yeah, quite possibly. Yeah, the retelling of the Dracula story. I know you're a big fan of German Expressionism, That's but right. it's based on Nosferatu. Uh, Ian McKellen plays Dracula, Chris, a sinister coachman, and Neil, the husband, on his wedding day. That's right, directed by Jack Bond, hot on the heels if it couldn't happen here. <laughs> So apparently after doing the film, he wanted to make a video with them as well, and he had the idea. Actually, Jack Bond makes a couple of cameos, so you can see him standing with a horse as the car carrying Neil and his bride drives past. He takes off his hat, turns to look at the castle, and apparently it's also Jack Bond that's driving the stagecoach with a top hat on and a black scarf pulled over to cover his face. I guess another good way of <laughs> Jack Bond keeping the cost down. One of my favourite videos, I love all of the actually costume dramas. There are some good bits where you get the bits of dialogue and sound effects over the top of the song. Again, Graham, for you, I reached yeah. out to some of the internet's leading Nosferatu <laughs> experts to help me understand what Ian McKellen is saying at the beginning of the video as he rises from the coffin. Yeah, and? Well, it, unfortunately, it seems to be uh, just gobbledygook. <laughs> <laughs> where, where are you finding these internet Nosferatu ex- Are there message boards where they're all hanging uh, around on? Yes, Facebook right. groups largely. <laughs> Another of my favourite Pet Shop Boys videos, in fact probably my all-time favourite Pet Shop Boys video, I don't know what you want but I can't give it anymore, that's chock full of cinematic influences. So the video's primary purpose was to showcase those amazing new costumes that Neil and Chris were wearing, that samurai punk cloak with the spiky wigs and striped collots. But visually, that first sequence where they're transforming into the new versions of them, well that was influenced directly by the film THX 1138. Many of the shots and props from that film were copied precisely. And then the dressing up scene where they're putting on those clothes for the first time, well that was inspired by the 1996 film Ridicule. And the living room with the illuminated floor, well that's a straight take from 2001 A Space Odyssey. In fact, they use that same set for the staging of the Creamfields headline show in the same year. 
And then finally, you've got a clockwork orange, which inspired the outdoor urban setting at the end. Wow, that's a lot of films in one video. You see, I thought I was holding my own in this conversation about <laughs> films, but THX1138 and Ridicule are two films to I've not seen. You see, my level of references in that video is I watched it recently and realised that when they're walking along the corridor, they're actually in a stadium because you can see through one of the gaps in the wall, there's a stand behind. Oh, OK. And, yeah, and, yeah. and then I become slightly obsessed with what stadium it was at, which I think <laughs> it's at Twickenham. Because <laughs> I went and looked at pictures of the stand. So that's my level of uh, detail on well, that. But well, n- nowhere about your... Well, I, mean, I might have stadium knowledge, but I don't have film knowledge. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I haven't seen Ridicule either. <laughs> I do know that the lavish video for It's a Sin wouldn't have existed if Neil hadn't caught Derek Jarman's Caravaggio on Channel 4. I think it was while they were working in the studio and they were watching this and suddenly thought, right, that's what we need to direct our new video. So I think Neil personally reached out to Jarman to direct it. Again, can you imagine just being asked to direct a video for a song that nobody's really heard but yet is going to be this worldwide smash hit and you've been asked to create a video for it? It must be quite exciting, that. Finally, in terms of videos, John Huston's 1979 black comedy Wise Blood was a major influence on the video that Eric Watson directed for the first release of Opportunities. Yeah, this is another film that I'm not aware of. So this is the video that opens the television VHS, the one with Neil in a hat, suit and glasses, somehow in the pit of a dark garage. I'm not quite sure how he got in there. No, lit by the headlights, the car behind, Chris skulking around, presumably the mechanic, tasked with fixing <laughs> Neil's car. <laughs> yeah, so apparently Eric Watson loved the film Wise Blood and essentially cast Neil as the same fake preacher from the film, wearing the same outfit. The film, like It Couldn't Happen Here maybe, features a cast of strange characters all out to essentially rip people off and make a fast buck. And the fake preacher has a string of car problems leading back to the same garage and mechanic. Interestingly, Neil mentioned the video when he spoke at Eric Watson's funeral after Eric passed away in 2012 at the far too young age of 56, saying that Neil at that point had never actually seen the film Wise Blood. So, Graham, you're in good company there. <laughs> I'm not going to say that's something that me and Neil have both got in common. And, and I suspect perhaps most of the people listening to this podcast, but we are very grateful for all the work that you've done in watching this. It's a fine public service that you are doing for all of us. Well, you know, I, I'd recommend Wise blood actually <laughs> okay graham another way in which films have infiltrated pet shop boys output is through the use of samples so i'm going to play you some film excerpts now which i've got loaded on my phone hopefully and between us we'll discover which pet shop boys recording they feature in first up from the 1942 war film in which we serve Wow, I've never heard that. Ah. So, do, do you recognise the song? Oh, I do recognise the song, yeah. I mean, the, there's a clue in the word <laughs> ship. Isn't there? So that Sail Away? That Sail, Sail Away, the cover of the Noel Coward song and Noel Coward stars in, in which we serve. Oh, wait, are you looking at pictures there as well? Oh, well, we're gonna, we'll post those because I've never seen these, so no, that's great. Oh, go. well. So this is actually a quiz, isn't it, really? We're going to whisper it. I I mean, I like a quiz, but we won't call it a quiz. (laughs) (laughs) Because they always go to pot and we we lose track of the score. So let's let's not call it a quiz and we'll just enjoy listening to some samples. Second one, Graham. So this is from My Gal Sal, uh, which was Irving Cummings' American musical film, oddly enough, also from 1942. So let me try and play this for you. 
what does this mean? What are you doing in San Francisco? Oh, nothing can keep me away when Pat told me you were going to sing my number. Your number? Yeah, and you did it beautifully. So you wrote it? Well, if I'd known that, I never would have sung a note of it. It would have stuck in my throat. I don't get it. Why did you beg to sing my number if you didn't want it? Beg for it? Why, somebody told me a long story about writing it in the middle of a cotton field. Oh, I see. Pat playing Cupid. Get out of here and take this cake with you. Whoa. <laughs> Get out of here and take this cake with you. I should use that as an insult in everyday life, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I love that sample. That sample always reminds me of the propeller heads take California, which I, I, I love. That's got sort of lots of samples in it as well. I love not that. Not the same one, No, surely. not the same one, no. I mean, that is just the greatest show since the discotheques and the sex lights. That's isn't the one. It? That's yeah. um, so electricity. That's electricity. Yeah. That's right. Excellent. Well, I, I can't wait to see that one either. Oh, this is. This is <laughs> what a great game this is. Not- okay, third one for you. So this is from the 1950 French film Orpheus, directed by Jean Cocteau. Il n'y a pas la radio que dans les voitures. Je ne trouve ce poste nulle part ailleurs. Alors si je veux profiter de toi, il faudra vivre dans une voiture. Rien de diablier. Écoute, mon amour. 38. 39. 40. I mean, that's another great sample, that, isn't it? I love that. I mean, I would never have known that that was from that film. I I don't even know how you listen to that film and go, "Ah, well, we'll just take that sample and we'll use that. I've never really understood how people take samples. So, I mean, we probably should say DJ culture. DJ culture, (laughs) yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, I love that. Uh, I I quite often end up, when I'm listening to that, give it the attention, attention. (laughs) Don't like a bit of that. Okay, next up. Two films, two samples, but the same Pet Shop Boys song. Okay. So, first sample. Now, this is from West Side Story. Might be a clue there. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. You want to live in this lousy world? Ooh. Yeah. Right. Don't guess yet. Now, this is from 1993 American teen drama, Menace to Society. Have you seen Menace to Society? Not that I'm aware of. Alright, see if you recognise this line. When the riot stopped, the drugs started. I just feel a compulsion to go do, 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 do. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes, yeah, somewhere. Somewhere. Somewhere, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, last one, Graham. This is from the film Victim, which was the first British film to explicitly reference homosexuality and to deal with it sympathetically. Let us hear the sample. Nature played me a dirty trick. I'm going to see I get a few years' peace and quiet in return. You've got a big position. They'll listen to you. You ought to be able to state our case. Tell them there's no magic cure for how we are. Certainly not behind prison bars. I've come to feel like a criminal, an outlaw. I think that that is the end of... Is it Odd Man Out? Yeah. It's Odd Man Out. In fact, the whole yeah. song, Odd Man Out, is, is inspired by this seminal film. That's it, Graeme. Yeah. The, the, now, if they'd have got their way, then You Are the One from Hotspot would have had a sample from Eight and a Half, the Fellini film. Couldn't get that cleared. They tried to get a sample from Call Me By Your Name, so I could have been playing you an excerpt from Call Me By Your Name, but they couldn't get that cleared in time, which is why You Are the One doesn't have any samples from any films on it and why you haven't just heard a clip of a sample from that track. Well, if they're planning any samples for the new album, let's hope they've they've got clearance in for those already. <laughs> to 
So when we started to plan this, we thought it might be fun to look at films that form Pet Shop Boys DNA. So to wrap up, I think we've both come along with two films that we feel reflects their essence, if you like. Do you want to start? Yeah, so growing up, both Neil and Chris, we know they were big Beatles fans. They were the first pop band that Neil loved. He would sit up in his pyjamas with his sister Susan watching them perform on Sunday nights at the London Palladium when he was nine. Taken by their dad to Newcastle City Hall simply to look at the queue outside because they were too young to go in but still wanted to be part of Beatlemania. The Beatles between 1964 and 1970 appeared in five major motion pictures. The first of these was A Hard Day's Night. Now that was actually the first film that Chris saw, being around five years old when it first came out. Neil was ten and when he saw it, I mean he's described it since as being a really thrilling thing because you got to see the Beatles performing live in it so he might not have been able to get into that concert at Newcastle City Hall but he could see them play in A Hard Day's Night. And it was from then on, from seeing the Beatles, from seeing A Hard Day's Night, that made him want to be a pop star and want to be a singer. Did your parents see the Beatles? No. No, well, no. that's because that's you're too young. My, even my, your, my parents were too young. <laughs> even your parents are much younger than my parents, that's what you're saying. My parents saw the show in Huddersfield at wow. the ABC. My dad did the whole queuing overnight for a ticket with his mates, whereas I think, and I've only found out this story quite recently, I think my mum just blagged a ticket from somewhere Brilliant. and got in. I mean, it must have been it must have been carnage in there. <laughs> well, I think it was. I Obviously, not seen the Beatles. I, I saw Take That once. That's the closest to it. That's the closest I've got to Beatlemania. I will never forget the noise that 12,000 Screaming <laughs> Girls makes. It was just the most incredible thing I've, I've, I've ever heard. It must have been incredible to see that and to experience the Beatles and I'm, I'm sure that everybody wanted to be a, a pop star having seen that. My first film that I've picked is The Sound of Music. This came out a year later than Hard Day's Night, 1965. Chris chose it as one of his favourite films as part of the HMV My Inspiration campaign in 2020, saying how he always looks forward to watching it at Christmas. It inspired the lyrical reference on It Must Be Obvious, which is the B-side of So Hard, but it feels like the flight of the Von Trapps, does that mean it's war? And when they headlined the Stonewalls Equality Show at the Royal Albert Hall, they played 16 Going On 17 and and Climb Every Mountain from the film soundtrack. Back in in 1997, I'd have loved to have heard that. I mean, the cover versions that they've only ever played once, fantastic. If, uh, If anyone was there at the gig and wants to give us a report on Twitter, then we'd love to hear from you. And if you've got a, a good MP3 version of it as well, we'd quite like to hear that. There's a, there's a kind of ropey version that's online of it that you can barely hear. So if anybody has got that, they can just sort of send that to us. We'd we'll, we'll be very appreciative of that. The Sound of Music, it was also one of the four musical films alongside Oliver and Annie and Carousel that Neil, Chris and Jonathan Harvey watched when they were looking for inspiration as they were starting to sketch out early ideas for their own musical Closer to Heaven. So I think you're right, it does play a key part in, in Pet Shop Boys' DNA. My second film is Saturday Night Fever, uh. 1977. And this is perhaps more for the soundtrack than the film, but you can't have one without the other, can you? you know, it's one of the best-selling albums of all time. Apparently there's a massive influence on Crisp. Kicks off his, his love of dance music and clubbing. Always talks passionately about Man Fridays in Blackpool and its light-up dance floors, plastic palm trees and so on. It's not just Bee Gees classics like Staying Alive and Night Fever, but I think his favourite was Disco Inferno by The Tramps. 
these 70s records that are probably embedded in the DNA of Pet Shop Boy songs now. They're all fantastic songs and that light up dance floor from Man Fridays, that must be the dance floor which appeared a few decades later in the Monkey Business ah, video, don't you yeah, think? Definitely, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, the spirit of the soundtrack lives on in Pet Shop Boy songs like Saturday Night Forever, Nightlife, New York City Boy. Have you seen the film, though? It's quite a different beast, isn't it? It's a little bit more hard-hitting. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, New York in 1977 is certainly not not like the New York of today, is it? No, <laughs> no. OK, finally, there's Cabaret from 1972, which Neil's described as the most perfect musical film ever made. It's the story of American cabaret singer Sally Bowles, who performs at the Kit Kat Club in 1930s Berlin. Britain was a pretty dreary place in 1972, and this film was a blast of divine decadence, full of fantastic songs, brilliant makeup, of course, Liza Minnelli in what was an iconic role for her. All very intriguing to 18-year-old Neil, who'd recently arrived in London from Newcastle. He'd listened to the soundtrack apparently in his Tottenham student flat back to back with Lou Reed's Transformer and Roxy Music's For Your Pleasure. That's a great combination, isn't it? I mean, I bet he could just never imagine that he'd be working, <laughs> you know, working with Liza just what? 16 years later no, something like that yeah, yeah. You know, and of course just like Cabaret's Kit Kat Club they similarly chose to set Closer to Heaven in a club you know the, the imaginatively titled The Club <laughs> in fact <laughs> I remember Neil telling a story about going to a variety club lunch for Liza Minnelli where Vanessa Redgrave gave a speech and she said that when she was a child, her father, Michael Redgrave, used to play songs on the piano, and she noticed that all the songs that she liked the best had got a picture of this woman on the cover of the sheet music, who was obviously Judy Garland, and all the pictures were taken from her films, and she asked her father, you know, why are they singing in these films? And he said, sometimes someone feels something so strongly that to speak isn't enough, and so they have to start singing. Apparently, this had quite a big effect on both Neil and Chris at the time. They both had tears in their eyes because that explanation resonated so strongly with them and just perfectly described their own motivation for songwriting. And I agree, those are brilliant words. So there we have it. Four films, Hard Day's Night, Sound of Music, Cabaret, Saturday Night Fever, which if boiled down, together with all the other films that we've talked about today, probably gives us the absolute essence of what Pet Shop Boys are about. They're classics, they look great, and they sound great as well. <laughs> Pet Shop Boys In-Depth is an independent podcast written and produced by Sykes Payne for F19 Media, with music by Paul Jackson. Each episode, we're calling out and thanking some of our supporters who've kindly helped us to cover recording and hosting costs. So huge thanks to Tim Healy, Malte Kierbluski, Nathan Ashworth, and Steph Galley. Follow us on Twitter at InDepthPSBPod or via our Facebook page for extra content and to be the first to hear about new episodes. You can help keep these podcasts ad-free by buying one of our exclusive In-Depth Podcast t-shirts. You'll find all the links in the podcast information or on our socials. And if you haven't already, please hit follow or subscribe, and we'd love it if you wrote us a review. Just pass me that last oyster, would you? Yeah, and pass us that bottle.